Welcome to episode 1702 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Got ourselves a guest today. We will shortly be talking to Ethan Singer, who is the creator of Umpire Scorecards, which if any of you listening are on Twitter or on the internet and consume baseball content, you very likely have come across something that Ethan has created. He started the at Ump Scorecards Twitter account and just recently launched a website, umpscorecards.com. And it's all dedicated to assessing the accuracy of umpires and grading them on a game-to-game basis and now on a season-long basis and looking at the impact team-to-team. So we're going to talk to Ethan, who is still a student, about how he created these resources and processes the information and turns out to be pretty tricky to actually judge after the fact whether a pitch was a strike. Maybe not quite as tricky as it is in the moment behind home plate while wearing a mask. But still pretty tricky, and there's a lot of nuance and technique that goes into it. So that'll be a fun conversation. And I've been interested in that even as someone who, like you, has reservations about robo-umps and feels somewhat romantic about not just the human element for umpires, less so that than I think the human element that comes into play with catching and how hitters interact with the strike zone that is called by umpires and how pitchers interact with it, etc. I still see a lot of value in having this available, and it's clear that there's a demand for it because there are 81,000 Twitter followers (laughs) counting, and that's a lot more than we have put together, and his account is a lot newer, so we probably should have tweeted about umpire accuracy instead of whatever else we've been tweeting or not tweeting about. See, the the failure in your logic is that I want 81,000 Twitter followers. I don't yeah. know. I don't know about that, man. Sometimes I'm like, I think one is too many. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Well, we will have Ethan soon. A couple things I wanted to mention. The first is that I've been seeing a a new term for the zombie runner start to circulate catching on in some quarters. And I want to try to nip it in the bud. And maybe I'm risking the Streisand effect here by mentioning it on a podcast. It's clever. I just don't like it as much as I like Zombie Runner. And so I want my preferred term to catch on. But people have started calling it the Manfred Man. And I like it in theory, but I think, A, it requires some knowledge of 60s and 70s rock music. So immediately you're losing a lot of people. Not me. I appreciate it, but many will not. And also, I think it is not condemnatory enough. I think the (laughs) zombie runner is uh, clearly negative. There's a negative tinge to that term. Whereas the Manfred Mann, clever as it is, it it doesn't necessarily express the idea that the Manfred Mann is a, a bad thing. I guess it's sort of mocking a little bit, but it could also be sort of celebrating Rob Manfred for having the, the boldness to innovate and put a runner on second base to start extra innings. So I don't care for it. I think it's hard to say. 
I think the Manfred man is hard to say a little bit. I think you get caught, your mouth gets caught up on all those M's and N's. It's like a man, it's so hard to, I I agree with you. I think that the zombie runner, it it denotes terror and crisis and something coming to get you, Barbara. And Mm -hmm. that is, that's much more in keeping with the the dread that we feel at the prospect of this rule persisting beyond our pandemic times mm-hmm. whereas the manfred man is like you know i don't know a bunch of british dudes with haircuts so <laughs> what's that that's not that's not yeah. anything no i like zombie runner because it it's very evocative and it captures the reanimation of the hitter who made an out and right. is now being restored to the bases and also, it's Ghost Runner adjacent, so people right. who've been using Ghost Runner, it's easy to, to wean them off Ghost Runner and use Zombie Runner instead. And I object to Ghost Runner just because that was an existing term in use for a runner who's invisible. It's not right. a real runner, an imaginary runner you're, you're marking the base with because you don't have enough people to be on the base. So that is a different meaning, I think. And so Zombie Runner is close enough but I think better captures it. So Manfred Mann, I I chuckled. It's clever. It's witty wordplay, perhaps, but I hope that it doesn't catch on. I hope Zombie Runner does. And I know the Rangers broadcasters have been using Zombie Runner, and uh, I've been in some tweets that they have tweeted about it. And so that's gratifying to hear it being used in actual Major League games. So I hope it catches on. Of course, I hope the Zombie Runner itself does not catch on and that we will no longer have to say it because it will no longer exist. But if it does exist, then I hope that we can use the term that is my favorite. Yeah, I support you, Ben. I think that you're right about this, as you have proven to be on many of the things related to the zombie runner. And again, I I like the idea that there might be fast zombie runners and slow zombie runners because... You know, the the zombie genre has expanded its purview. It no longer requires them to be slow. Some of them are very fast, and that makes them even more terrifying because really, it's just like, I don't know, make sure you're wearing sneakers and don't fall down. Why does everyone always fall down in horror movies? Yeah, I think they always that- fall down. I think that people are are sure on their feet than that. I think that it's, I don't know that that holds water, Ben. I don't think it's realistic, perhaps. You do have to account for the pressure of the situation. Sure. You know, it's not quite analogous to our, our daily movement. So I'd imagine that if you were perhaps running through the woods and some slavering beast is right. after you and trying to eat you, then, you know, maybe your balance wouldn't be up to its its usual par but still it does seem like it's uh it's an exaggerated rate yeah and slow zombies they don't scare me at all you can right. out walk them I don't right get it yeah and I, look i don't want to discount how impactful root systems might be to one's experience <laughs> of the woods like that that might come and get you even if there isn't a zombie involved but it just seems like people fall down a lot and i don't know it's just like stop turning around to see the zombie <laughs> and focus on running forward and looking at where you're going and i think you're gonna survive more often than not it's kind of a amazing i like the walking dead's been on for like 20 years and uh i think those are like medium-paced zombies i stopped watching that show because it was the like quality to gross ratio wasn't quite right for me you made the smart decision i've watched every episode of that show and every spin-off of that show (laughs) i could not tell you why oh yeah the spin-offs are multiplying but yeah in in that show and we don't have to get into a a lengthy digression about that (laughs) and zombies but uh 
they really get you when they're in groups. Of course, sure. that's the, the real risk. And yet it does seem one of the displeasures of watching that show is how often you are yelling at the screen saying, why are you not doing this very right. obvious thing that you would do in this situation? And it's because the zombies are too slow and they're not that menacing unless the people do things that they shouldn't do to get themselves in trouble. Yeah, I I just uh I think that focus on running straight on and and watching where you're going and you're going to be okay more often than not. Although, you know, like there's nothing that says that zombies would only afflict people who are really good at strategy. So maybe in that respect it's it's very accurate and sort of true to life that, you know, you get some you get some some thinkers and then you get some folks that are just uh going to get eaten, you know. Mm-hmm. Um yep. or unlucky, um you know, sometimes the thinkers don't make it either and we don't want anyone to get eaten by a zombie thinker or no so um i guess that's what we'd have to say about that what are we talking about this episode? <laughs> <laughs> i guess this is one downside of the term zombie runner is that it encourages unscheduled and perhaps unwanted segues into actual zombies but we can move on from that to another of my hobby horses which is pitcher hitting because this was brought to my attention Just this week when we had another instance of a pitcher really ostentatiously not hitting, just having to hit, but making no effort whatsoever to hit. And I think we talked about this earlier this season when there was a a Taiwan Walker plate appearance against Matt Harvey, and he just very clearly was not going to lift the bat off his shoulder. He was just going to stand there and take whatever came his way until he either walked or struck out. And of course he struck out. This happened this week and it was maybe even funnier. And it was sort of a a ridiculous situation because it was pitcher hitter against position player pitcher. And really that's just a race to the bottom. And I've been meaning to try to figure out analytically which is worse, you know, which is more incompetent, a pitcher who is trying to hit or a position player who is trying to pitch. They're both pretty terrible. And really, you could say it's one of the sort of nice but albeit strange things about baseball is that we so regularly get to see people do things that they are not qualified to do and are not trained to do and not selected to do. I mean, in many sports, how often do you see someone perform as incompetently and look as incompetent as a pitcher hitter does or a position player pitcher. And these are fairly routine things. Pitcher hitting is an extremely routine thing, and position player pitching has become a fairly routine thing. And one thing that I do value about pitcher hitting is that the steep decline over time does enable us to see how much better players have gotten at doing the things that they are actually trying to be good at. And so it's helpful to have pitcher hitting as kind of a contrast to that. But really, are there other sports where you so regularly see people who are asked to do things that they're not at all prepared to do at that high level of competition? It takes like really catastrophic injury to multiple people for that to happen, right? Because even when you have, you know, like your your average backup quarterback is like generally significantly worse than your starter, sometimes like really, really worse than your starter, (laughs) but like often can throw a pass downfield like they're not going to be good they're a backup for a reason and you want your starter in instead but they're at least operating in the same general position group right it's only when Mm -hmm. like really bad stuff happens and you're getting like the emergency quarterback that things go awry or you know sometimes in football you'll get you know injuries to to some part of your kicking apparatus that's not the way to describe (laughs) it i am a football fan but like you'll get uh you know like something will happen to your long snapper yeah or 
everyone catches COVID and you're right. just signing the 50th string person who's available. Yeah. Right. Or like, you know, you, the, the guy, your punter suddenly has to kick field goals for you. But like, even there, even it tends then. to. <laughs> I mean, with pitcher hitting, you're right. getting guys who have not hit since Little League in right. some w- cases. And they're in the big leagues doing it. It would so. be like, you know, a couple of years ago on the Seahawks, I think that Cam Chancellor, who was their strong safety, was their like third string super emergency quarterback. And even he, like had played some quarterback but it had been since you know maybe early college potentially high school um since he had done that and i just remember never having to see him ever take a single snap so it didn't matter it was just like a thing you knew and if you wanted to feel anxious you could be mm-hmm. and even i didn't really indulge that because it's like well we at least have a backup um so yeah it's a very it's a very unusual circumstance in some sports i mean i'm sure that we'll get emails from people being like it's exactly like this thing and and yes. that's cool i am excited to learn about it but um it is a a very strange bit of business to have someone essentially flip from offense to defense when they don't already play that position exactly you know when they don't already play both sides of the ball i am aware that there are there are sports where you do both things yes this is not one of those situations so There you go. In the NHL, you get the emergency goalies every now and then, and that's kind of a fun story. But they are still goalies. Like, they, they may not be right. professional goalies or high-level professional goalies, but they are goalies. Whereas a, a pitcher-hitter is, in many cases, not really a hitter in any real sense, except that he is being tasked with hitting. Anyway, this came to mind because Archie Bradley had an at-bat, and Archie Bradley on the Phillies now and is a reliever, so is obviously not hitting regularly, although he started in the past with the Diamondbacks, and so he hit at times not well. He has a career 095-094-095 slash line. That's your basic 189 OPS in 68 plate appearances, and that was a little lower after his plate appearance this week. And what made it funny is that, as I said, he was going against a position player pitcher. In this case, it was Reds infielder Mike Freeman, a former teammate of Archie Bradley. And the Phillies were up 17-3 to in this game. <laughs> and it was two outs in the ninth. So this is not a situation where anyone is incentivized to try their hardest, but Archie Bradley did not try at all, and he did not pick the bat off his shoulder for the first two pitches. Before the third pitch, he briefly faked a bunt, I think jokingly, (laughs) and then put the bat back on his shoulder and left it there. And it was, uh, I think it was a four-pitch strikeout. So he did not swing, did not even feign that he was going to attempt to swing. And so having seen that and having seen Taiwan Walker do the same in a little bit less of a lopsided situation, I wondered whether this was getting more widespread. The pitcher played appearance where the pitcher just does not even try to look like a hitter. And I can't quite quantify that, but I can quantify whether there was a swing or any attempt to make contact with a pitch. So even a bunt attempt or a bunt, any reason why the pitcher would have lifted the bat off his shoulder or made any actual motion to try to put the ball in play. And I asked Lucas Apostolaris of Baseball Prospectus to look this up for me, and he was able to go back to the beginning of this century and just look at the percentage of pitcher plate appearances and position player plate appearances where this doesn't happen, where there's no attempt to swing. 
And unsurprisingly, the pitcher rate has increased astronomically. It is uh, much higher than it has ever been before. And it's still low, like it's still fairly rare, but it is now up to 7.04% of pitcher plate appearances in which the pitcher just takes every pitch until it's over. And this is a lot higher. This is like two and a half times more common than it was like in 2002. It was 2.71% of pitcher plate appearances. Now, again, it's 7.04. And there does appear to have been a large leap This season, specifically, just from 2019, we can throw out 2020 because pitchers basically didn't hit, but just in 2019, it was like 5%, so still, you know, almost twice as frequent as it was 20 years ago or less than 20 years ago, but now it has really jumped up over 7%, and that's still a a small number, but a appreciable number, and it probably makes sense that it has spiked both over time and also suddenly just this season because you have pitchers who did not hit at all last year and pitchers who probably expected that they wouldn't have to hit this year and may not have done as much preparation as they would have done otherwise if they had done any. And maybe also they feel like pitcher hitting's days are numbered and the universal DH is coming in, so why try? So yeah, it's now an all-time high rate. And just for comparative purposes, Lucas also gave me the position player rate, and that has not increased over the same span at all. In fact, it has declined a little bit, and it is uh, now lower than it is for pitchers. It's at about 5%. And, And if you look at the percentage of plate appearances where there was no swing for a pitcher, but there may have been a bunt attempt, but just no actual swing, even if there was a, a bunt, uh, that is now over 20%, which is all also pretty high. There was one year, 2009, when it was up that high previously, but otherwise, this is the second highest rate. So, you know, makes sense because uh, pitchers are bad at this, and I think most of them know that they're bad at this, and yeah. injury rates are high. So, you know, why bother? Obviously, why bother if you're going against a position player pitcher in a 17-3 to game and it's a former teammate of yours? But even in other situations, you know, it may just not be worth the risk of pulling an oblique or hurting your hand or something. So you just stand there and take it until the suffering is mercifully over. I know that this is not exactly the same thing because, you know, there are going to be instances, I mean, every single game where a pitcher has to hit in the course of a couple of times, right? In the course of being a starter. And so it is not as if you necessarily have the option to concede because why would you do that? You're trying to win a baseball game. But when things get really, really out of hand and the score is a football score, perhaps part of the confusion here is that they thought they were playing football after the score had gotten to where it did. But I do wonder sometimes about why we're so reluctant to forfeit just generally. And then if and then, you know, what is a what is a pitcher keeping the bat on his shoulder but forfeiting the plate appearance, right? right. He's not for- forfeiting the game. He's still going to go try his hardest when he has to pitch, but you're essentially conceding the plate appearance. And I I just wonder if we we shouldn't have a bigger conversation about why we're so reluctant to to allow for forfeits in some situations because I don't know that the difference between a pitcher forfeiting a given plate appearance earlier in the game, not, you know, in the ninth inning with two outs and and a blowout, but just earlier in the game is is 
actually as different. It is definitely different, but I wonder if it is actually as different as conceding when the score is is wildly divergent and the gap is wide and, and sort of insurmountable late in game. And mm-hmm. that's a bigger conversation than we can have right now because we're just trying to get to the point where we say, and now our guest. <laughs> but I I wonder about conceding and forfeiting because generally I think we don't want people to do that because there's already enough of folks not trying very hard or trying as hard as we think they ought to but I think it's a little different when you're just being forced to do a thing that is um, really should be ancillary to your job description so Mm -hmm. maybe at some point in the future we could contemplate a larger conversation about forfeiting and when we think it's acceptable and it's funny because like next year hopefully we just don't have to deal with this because they won't be up there hitting anymore yeah And we answered that email recently about like a pitcher protest and what if they all struck out on purpose and and tried to make a point of it. So we've touched on that. And and obviously, like putting in a position player pitcher is a form of forfeiting. It is uh, conceding in a sense, but not actually doing so. And there's nothing in the rules that says you can't do that. It's just kind of an institutional cultural reluctance to do that. So I don't know what you would have to do to persuade people to take that step because right. at that point, like they're not harboring any hope of a comeback. <laughs> you know, we're we're all kind of wasting each other's time a, a little bit. I guess maybe some players like accumulating the stats or something. You right. know, not Archie Bradley. He's not going to be paid any better if he gets a single in that plate appearance as a, a reliever. But Yermin Mercedes, for instance. So. I guess that there's some incentive for some players to want to play on, and there's just a a larger, I think, cultural disincentive to look like quitters, essentially, even if you are essentially throwing in the towel as soon as you bring in that position player pitcher. So unless they really codified it where they said, you know, mercy rule, essentially, which uh, we've talked about that probably in the past, unless they did that. I don't know whether they could get a team to take that step of not just effectively throwing in the towel, but actually throwing in the towel. And to be clear, I'm not saying that they should. I just mm-hmm. think that we should talk more about it because uh, we we talk around it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> not you I, and I specifically, but like, right. you know, the zeitgeist to yeah. the extent that it contemplates forfeiting in baseball games at all. It <laughs> tends to talk around it when it does. Yeah, I think I'd rather have forfeits in really lopsided blowouts than I would have a zombie runner in a close game. So that's where I stand. And certainly not a Manfred man. No. I also wanted to mention, because we talked about NFTs, however begrudgingly and reluctantly (laughs) on our last episode, prompted by MLB's decision to use Lou Gehrig Day as kind of a test case for NFTs, which was kind of icky because that is a a moment where a man is uh, announcing a a death sentence, essentially. And it means a lot to a lot of people and we're turning it into an NFT. And I know that in that specific case, I think the proceeds were going to go to charity, but it was also clearly like, hey, can we make this into a sustainable business? And there was a, a quote, I think, in the press release from MLB VP of Business Development, who said, when you think about NFTs, there is this concept of it being a fad. What we're looking to do is to build a long-term sustainable business. And I have bad news 
for the VP of Business yeah. Development, which is that it certainly looks like a fad. <laughs> and we kind of talked about this yesterday, just the, the irony of MLB getting into this, just as it seemed like the bottom was fortunately falling out of this market. But not long after we posted that episode, there was a, a report just about how the NFT market bubble has popped and the transactions are, are down like 90% from their peak and it's just kind of falling apart across the board and I don't think it's going to go away entirely but it doesn't seem like people are shedding a lot of tears outside of uh, maybe a, a few tech crypto bros who who made a killing here. I don't know that anyone is uh, particularly attached to this because as we mentioned yeah the the NFT may be a unique thing that you are chiseling out on the blockchain for yourself and that can't be replicated but the moment itself is easily replicable and we can all watch it. So it's sort of this meaningless distinction. So I would not be sorry to see this happen and for MLB to have terrible timing and to have missed the boat when it came to capitalizing on this uh, market that burned bright, but hopefully has burned itself out (laughs) at least until they figure out how to do it without destroying the environment and using an inordinate amount of electricity. Yeah, which seems... You know, not that I don't know that there's a thing that would ever justify the environmental impact that this has for me. So just like to be clear, I don't know that this is like a bar that they could ever, ever clear, but they sure haven't here because uh, (laughs) we've all we've all seen the speech. And then why do you, you know, we don't have to relitigate why we don't understand the particular individual incentives here. But Mm -hmm. yeah, it seems as if there are other ways that MLB might go about making their business sustainable and it doesn't involve a thing that ends up being mostly a speculative market. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's just one podcaster's opinion and it's not only because they've made me feel old, although it is at least a little bit. (laughs) We'll admit that part, you know? It's Mm -hmm. like, uh, I don't, I don't. See, it made me feel old initially because it was like, wait, what is this? Do I have to care about this? Why don't I understand this? But then it became clear that actually it is terrible. (laughs) It isn't just that I missed the appeal because uh, I'm not young and hip enough. No, it's that it actually is bad and and almost wholly without redeeming qualities. And so it's okay that I was initially repelled by it because it's not like uh, listening to new music and it's not to your liking and you say music used to be better in my day. That is a, a subjective matter and many people have different opinions with NFTs, I'm not sure that many people do have different opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a small minority do. But anyway, I figured I would pass along that report just because it, it seems that MLB has gotten in on this at, at just the right time to not be able to make much money off it, which is maybe for the best, but also sort of amusing. Yeah. <laughs> and the other report that I wanted to pass along relevant to something we've discussed lately is that it sounds as if four minor league pitchers have been ejected and suspended for using farm substances this season, all in low A or high A. And we have talked about how there have been some reports that MLB is about to crack down on this and they've been gathering the data and the intel and suddenly they're going to spring into action and uh, nab every offender. I don't know if that's actually going to happen, but I do wonder whether picking on these players in low A or high A is their way of kind of testing that out, you know, doing a 
a trial run where no one is really paying attention and no one has the standing to be upset about it or to make much of a fuss about it. So I feel a little bit bad if that's the case for the minor league pitchers who are the the test cases, the sacrificial lambs here. But I also sort of approve of trying to do something about this problem. And perhaps this is a step toward that. So anyway, there is reportedly a, a meeting on Thursday, which is possibly taking place as we speak. We haven't heard anything about the outcome of that, but supposedly foreign substances was one of the items on that owner's meeting agenda. So there may be some concrete action that comes of this and perhaps those minor league pitchers getting tossed is sort of the the tremor before the full earthquake. Yeah, it is it is in the the rule book. Oh yeah. And so yeah, it is it is interesting and will be interesting to see how this gets applied going forward. Mostly I appreciated that when this story was initially tweeted out by JJ Cooper of Baseball America, he he tweeted a, a grab from the rule book. And that's how I learned that the twenty twenty one rule book is finally online. But oh wow, it's that's a the, big day for you. Yeah, I you When's know, the like, episode when you read the rule book start to finish? The, the 2019 one was up there for a really long time, and mm-hmm. they never updated it with 2020, and I kind of give them a pass because it was a busy year, and, you know, a lot was going on. Um, but then then the calendar switched to 2021, and a new rule book was agreed to, and uh, it took a really long time, but now it's here, and so it's just, like, a really big day for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, terrible for these, for these guys. <laughs> <laughs> I do wonder if you started at those lower levels, whether that would then percolate upward eventually right. like if if it were like the pitch clock or or the zombie runner unfortunately if it were one of these things that were sort of tested and enforced in the minors first would that be a way to eradicate it without having the uncomfortable confrontation of doing it in the major league spotlight because right. eventually uh, that would be sort of similar to what we talked about the other day, which is what if you just legalized it for players who were already doing it, right? And then you just phased it out over time. That would be essentially what this is. So like ban it in the minors and then hope that no one gets in the habit of using the foreign substances and then they graduate to the big league level and maybe you're not enforcing it as strictly anymore, but they just won't be accustomed to using it. Or maybe they would just start using it then because yeah. then it would matter even more and the incentive would still be there. Yeah, I I mean, I think that we're about to see a pretty dramatic shift if this is going to be taken seriously at the big league level i think you're going to see a lot of guys who are like well i guess i gotta figure out how to do a different thing mm-hmm. and so i think this might be a situation where the the strict enforcement at the major league level actually is what ends up being a chilling effect and i the the part that i'm really curious to see is what effect it has on amateur players right like because if you watch a college game you see the same set of things i imagine that the substances they have access to are perhaps different but you know you still see guys going to their hat and going to their belts and you know messing around in the glove and so i imagine that part of that is due to the fact that they understand that there will not be you know for the ones who have big league aspirations that there will not be um, a serious culture of enforcement around foreign substances and so they want to have as much spin as they can on their fastball or and all their other pitches for that matter. And so I want to see what the knock-on effects are outside of affiliated ball too. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you can't, it would be a real shame if you got drafted with one thing and then they're like, oh, he can't do that thing again. You know? Yes. Yeah. 
And the last thing I wanted to mention is that Mike Marshall passed away on Monday at age 78, the former pitcher of the 60s and 70s and early 80s. He pitched for 14 years and he had quite a career, of course, most famously won the Cy Young Award in 1974 but had, I think, oh, four top five finishes, five top 10 finishes in the Cy Young Award race, and just really one of the best baseball reference pages because your mind boggles when you look at some of the seasons that he had and the way that he was used in those years with the Expos and Dodgers and other teams. And he was also very much a trailblazer when it came to biomechanical analysis and trying to prevent injuries and optimize performance. And Jeff Passan has a good piece up at ESPN about that now, which I will link to. But that was something I heard all the time talking to people for the MVP machine who cited Mike Marshall as an influence and the way that he was thinking of these things in a a really counterintuitive and kind of iconoclastic way. And, uh, you know, maybe some of his claims were were a bit exaggerated and certainly he was a a prickly personality and wasn't always the the most persuasive uh, when it came to getting people on board with his techniques. But in the use of slow motion video and talking about what we now know as seam shifted wake and spin axis and all of these things, he was really ahead of his time. So he kind of gave rise, I think, to a lot of the way that pitching development works now. But on the other hand, the way that he pitched is not at all in evidence in today's game. And we got a question about that from a listener, Shane, who said the baseball world learned about the passing of Mike Marshall today. This was earlier this week. Someone I have quite the soft spot for because of his unicorn-like usage. Marshall's use to me resembles a reverse starter. He would be asked to work anywhere from one to six innings and broke records for pitcher appearances, games finished, and more, and even won the Cy Young Award in 1974. My question is, why do you think this form of pitcher usage has never really caught on? Do you see it as a potential avenue for new developments in pitching usage with the rise of the opener as a strategy and with Joe Musgrove pitching five innings in relief to finish the game against the Astros Sunday? I can't help but feel it's odd that this type of usage hasn't at least been experimented with by more teams over recent years. Any thoughts on this? And really, I mean, it it looks like not just out of another era, but some sort of alien world or something. When you look at his line from 1974, 106 games pitched, 83 games finished, 21 saves, 208 and a third innings pitched. It's just wild that he was used all the time like that and racked up that kind of workload. And that was in the days when you had starters going 250, 300 innings, you know, real workhorses. But he was used for not quite as many innings, but just all the time. I mean, most of the, the team's games he was being used. And we don't see anything like that now where the innings limits and, and the pitch counts are stricter than ever, but also teams are stricter than ever when it comes to like using pitchers on back-to-back days or back-to-back-to-back days. So do you think this could ever come back into vogue? Might we ever see another Marshall-style pitcher? Is there anything teams could learn from that model? Oh, God, I don't know the answer to that question, Ben. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> I mean, we haven't seen it, so yeah. probably not. Like, the, the whole trend over time has been less and less usage and fewer right. and fewer appearances, so it, it would take a real sea change, but... If you could have someone who could pitch like that, it, it would be immensely valuable to you, especially in this era. It's just, I don't know who has the arm to do it or could train to do it. And it's just so out of step with the times. Well, and I, I imagine that the the real answer to that question, like if we had a, a magic wand that could reveal to us 
the players for whom doing this is feasible from like an injury prevention perspective where you don't have to be as concerned about wear and tear for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I imagine that teams would be like um and then they would and then they would elect to have some of those guys because mm-hmm. those are valuable guys especially as we're entering an era where it seems like we are very likely to have limitations on how many pitchers you can have on the roster, right? And so mm-hmm. you want to have guys who can who can really do um what's being proposed here, but we don't have that. And so mm-hmm. I think that what what will likely happen is that you continue to see um, pitcher usage dip or at least plateau because you don't, if you're wrong, right? If you don't have the magic wand and you are overtaxing a guy, the risk to you and to the player is potentially catastrophic, right? It's mm-hmm. at the very least, it might be career altering. Yeah. And, and the downside to not doing that is just that he doesn't go quite as long. And mm-hmm. so I think that that risk reward calculus is always going to lend itself toward throwing fewer pitches rather than more. Yeah. And you're going to have guys who sort of volunteer to throw more than that. And there are, you know, like if you're a guy who can go 200 innings and you can accumulate a bunch of stats, that's valuable not only to the team, but to you potentially, right? It might make you well compensated in free agency and it might boost numbers that get you paid in arbitration. But I th- I think that not just for those reasons, but to, to really try to manage load for guys and keep them as healthy as possible that you're just going to see teams really reticent to do that and even the guys who volunteer right like you know bauer wanted to throw every day not Mm -hmm. every day but he wanted to throw really often and he wanted to throw a lot and i think that the the number of players who are going to be keen to sort of volunteer for that kind of a workload is going to be limited because they're also concerned about the health of their arms and you know are probably wanting to pitch enough to be valuable and to stay a starter and to be compensated like one, but are going to be mindful about sort of maintaining their health so that they can go as many seasons as possible. And so I think those things are likely to counterbalance it. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think Russell Carlton has written about the potential for some sort of hybrid role where it's kind of in the middle. It's not the one inning guy and maybe it's not exactly a long man, but maybe it's like a three inning reliever or something. Mm -hmm. And we kind of don't even have a term for that that is in common usage because it's so rare now. And as you see the lines blur between starters and relievers and, you know, you look at like the Rays pitching staff and it's like, what is this? Is this an opener? Is this a bulk guy? Is this just something in the middle? I don't know. It's just all kind of a big jumble of guys who go three or four innings or, or whatever. So I guess that kind of in a way brings you closer to the Marshall model, but also not really because they're still working pretty sparingly. So I think you would need either an advance in injury prevention, which Mike Marshall probably would have said, hey, follow my plan and no one will ever get hurt again, or you'd need some real restriction on pitcher usage, either in-game or over the course of a season or on the roster at any one time, then that would maybe make teams a little more willing to try it. But yeah, as you said, you kind of like err on the side of safety and protecting pitchers, which is good. And maybe we've taken it too far, but you don't want to ruin anyone's career. Although you also don't want to impair anyone's performance by having them pitch a lot less than they're physically capable of pitching. So 
it's a tough balance, and I don't think we're anywhere close to figuring out exactly what the ideal balance is. So that's going to keep evolving. But yeah. it doesn't seem like we're any closer to swinging back toward the Marshall model, unfortunately, as fun as that would be. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I'd rather us be careful and have guys' careers extend as long as they can and have them avoid major surgery or injury setback because pitching's just bad for you anyway. Like mm-hmm. no matter how how careful you are and 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 what kind of load management you do, there's always a risk because it's just an incredibly taxing activity. And so we don't need to help out. I was about to say that in a weird way. Like we don't need to help out the UCLs. It's like, no, we really do need to help them out. We don't (laughs) need to need all the help they can get. Right. We don't need to be any more cavalier with them. Not the people who want pitchers to go longer being cavalier, but you know, like they're, they're prone to breakage all on their own. They don't need any assistance in that regard. So right. Exactly. Yeah. There's a new article every day about how injury rates are up. Pitcher injury rates are not up relative to last year, but last year was way up relative to previous years, and right. hitter injuries are up compared to previous years. So Soft whatever issues, is, man. Yeah, whatever's happening now is also not the solution because that's not working either. Yeah. It's like baseball is really hard, and you have to be really athletic to play it, I know, and yet it seems like there should be fewer injuries than this. I mean, I know that pitchers are throwing harder than ever and hitters are bigger and stronger and swinging harder than ever and everything but it's not a contact sport and it seems like one of the virtues of baseball should be hopefully that there's less risk of this sort of thing obviously there's less risk of like you know catastrophic head injuries and that sort of thing but you'd rather have a hamstring strain or something than something that's going to threaten a career or a life or quality of life but still, like, it would be nice if, you know, people make fun of baseball players for just sort of standing around all the time. And there is a lot of standing around that happens. <laughs> we must admit that. And so it would be nice if that translated to, like, guys not getting hurt so that the best players were on the field all the time. But it doesn't seem to be happening either, even though teams are devoting all these resources to high performance and optimizing training and nutrition and all of that. But that's a larger conversation, so we hope that everyone stays safe and healthy, yeah. and we will miss Mike Marshall and hope that there will be another Marshall-esque pitcher someday. And now, we will take a quick break, and we'll be back with Ethan Singer to talk about assessing umpires. are back now and we are joined by the founder and proprietor of the umpire scorecards twitter account at ump scorecards and umpscorecards.com ethan singer hello ethan how are you i'm doing well how are you good and happy to have you so i want to ask you about the origin story of how you got into umpire analysis and what made you want to start the account which has gotten quite popular and <laughs> you started the ump scorecards twitter account just last august and you're already well over 80,000 followers and climbing pretty rapidly and I've concocted an origin story for this in my head where (laughs) you were victimized by an umpire in Little League in a pivotal moment and you (laughs) took a pitch that was outside the strike zone and it 
was called a strike and you were the goat and you've had it out for umpires for years. And so you've dedicated yourself to learning the coding skills necessary to bring umpire analysis to the masses so that you could expose their fallibility. But the real story, I imagine, is a little less sinister than the supervillain origin story. So how did you get inspired to do this work? Sure. Well, I certainly wish I had an origin story (laughs) nearly as interesting as something like that. Uh, But unfortunately, it is uh, significantly more lame. (laughs) I started a couple years ago. Over the summer, I was sort of, I, I read this article by a professor at Boston University who had written about the volume of missed calls in Major League Baseball. And it just randomly, I guess, came across my feed or something like that. And I was pretty interested. I mean, every baseball fan loves to complain about umpires every chance they get. So I was among that crowd. But one piece of the puzzle that I thought was missing was, you know, we don't only care about how often these calls happen, but we also care about how much they affect um, the players, the pitchers, et cetera. So that's when I get that that could be considered like the, the very beginning. But then last summer, I sort of had this idea where, well, maybe I can look at this at a game by game level. And I sort of built that this built out this program, which, you know, gets all the data for the games and splits it up into all the different games and generates these graphics. And then, you know, for a while, I was just making graphics by hand and posting them on Reddit, but they were really, really ugly. And we're not getting really any um, traction. So I figured Twitter might be the way to go. So I added some uh, Twitter implementation into my programs. And yeah, then here we are today. I mean, for a while I was coasting there with about five or six likes per tweet. But then the Yankees had a sort of like big game in the playoffs. And there were a couple other big ones and then sort of just took off from there. And I'm curious, we can get into some of the differences here. What how would you distinguish what you're doing from some of the prior iterations that we've seen of this? Because I think there have been sort of umpire bots in the past that have tried to grade out umpire performances. And some of those have gotten close, but they've been wanting. And I'm curious both sort of how familiar you are with those and whether they had any role to play in how you thought about differentiating your own model, which I uh, laud you for being uh, both more sophisticated and, and seemingly much more accurate. So I'm curious how that process came to came to be for you? Sure. So, I mean, there's definitely a lot of things that I looked at online before starting. I'm not necessarily sure I remember the specific accounts, but just, I guess the, the, the sorts of things that I kept in mind while I was starting was, you know, I don't want to overly criticize the umpires, which I know a lot of accounts have done, focusing specifically on, you know, the most important missed calls, the farthest missed call, stuff like that. I wanted to be as objective as possible and just focus on performance as a whole, including when, you know, performance is is really good. And I mean, I'm sure there's other things I thought about. I I really thought one of the, you know, the the most important things is the visual aspect of it and making it aesthetically pleasing as possible. I'm not quite there yet. It's still a bit cluttered. Uh, There's a lot of information, but at least, you know, there are some nice looking graphics and some fun colors on there. Uh, So I think those were some of the big inspirations that I tried to iterate on, like versus some prior versions that I had seen, just making it look nicer and making sure to be as objective and, uh, you know, as analytical as possible. 
Yeah, and can you talk a little bit about the difficulty of assessing accuracy? Because we know it's difficult to call pitches correctly. Umpires are very good at their jobs. It's just an impossible job to do perfectly. So that part is obvious. I mean, you can tell why it would be tough to, you know, a pitch that is moving at 90-something miles per hour and and moving and, you know, your view is obscured and how do you tell whether it's an inch off the plate or not? Obviously, that's hard. But people might think, well, it's probably relatively simple to quantify after the fact how accurate an umpire was, but that turns out to be pretty complicated too because there is uncertainty about where the ball was and there's also uncertainty about where the strike zone was. So can you explain why that's the case? Yeah, sure. So there's a a ton of uncertainty for sure. The first, probably the, the most obvious concern is that the true strike zone as determined by the rules is three dimensions. It has a component that spans like from the front of the plate to the back of the plate. Whereas if you use data, you're looking at a 2D representation of the strike zone as the ball crosses the plate. So that's sort of the first major, you know, issue in determining whether a a pitch is a ball or a strike. And then some other ones are, as you mentioned, the top and the bottom of the strike zone are not preset in the rules like the left and right side of the strike zone are. They're Mm -hmm. determined specifically by the batter's stance, which is hard to quantify to the, I mean, it's very hard to get a precise, you know, where exactly we should draw this line. And then from there, you know, once the ball is thrown, there's some variability in terms of what the data will say about where the the pitch was. So not only do we not know where the strike zone was, but we also don't know, at least to an incredible amount of precision, where the ball actually was. And so, you know, for a while, I was looking at these measurements as if they were exactly right and that they had no tolerance. And I got a little bit of criticism for that in my earlier days. So now I sort of bake in a little bit of randomness into the, at least into the the, the location of the ball. But it's certainly, I would still today not say that it's entirely accurate. At least from my perspective, there is no sort of perfect way to know whether this pitch is a ball or a strike. What I'm doing now is sort of a, um, you know, a best guess type situation where I'm just trying to present this data as transparently as possible without saying, you know, I know that this was a ball. I know that this was a strike. So, yeah, I, I guess that's those are the major the major difficulties in determining whether it's a ball or a strike. Well, and you don't just concern yourself with the accuracy. You're also interested in the consistency of the umpire from team to team. And I know that in earlier iterations of this project, you you actually didn't have a consistency score, but now you do. What right. was the process like there? And what were some of the challenges you faced in trying to arrive at something that was not only accurate when it comes to consistency, which I know might be confusing given that you're also concerned with accuracy, but also right. easy to sort of translate and explain to someone looking at the graphics that you produce? Yeah, that's a great question. So in between last season and this season, so just in the off season, a consistency metric was by far the thing that was um, requested the most by people online. Uh, Because, I mean, you know, it's somewhat intuitive. If an umpire is calling every pitch outside of the box at a certain location a strike, then, you know, maybe it's not exactly accurate, but the batter can know it will be called a strike. So in that sense, Consistency may be um, more important than accuracy, at least in certain cases, not all the time, but certainly in um, some cases. So that was sort of the, the inspiration. And then in terms of difficulties, the, the biggest difficulty, like you, like you said, 
comes in sort of taking a, a complicated, you know, really a math question and turning it into how do I communicate this in terms of just in a single game, how consistent is this umpire? So uh, what, what it essentially is, is if you drew a box around every pitch that was called a strike, and then you took all of the balls that were called, or all the pitches that were called balls, how many of them landed inside that strike box that you had already drawn? Um, now that's an oversimplification. The, the strike box is not actually a box. It's a very oddly shaped polygon. And uh, there are some other considerations too, but that's essentially the, 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 the way it works. And I think it's a sort of, it's a good baseline. It's pretty easy to explain to people. I think it makes intuitive sense. You know, you don't want something that's called a ball to have also been called a strike in the same game. Obviously, that would be uh, somewhat inconsistent. Um, there's obviously, there are better things, um, especially on a season. Like if you had a whole season's worth of data, there are more accurate things you could do in terms of consistency, which I hopefully will be adding to the site at some point. But in terms of just a single game, this consistency metric is is I think what I'm going to stick with. Yeah, and you talked about the difficulty of determining the top and bottom of the zone, and you're sort of relying on MLB's stringers, essentially, right, who right. are sort of setting that maybe before every plate appearance or, or pitch, and right. sometimes there are errors in that data, which sure. I guess would unavoidably be reflected in yours just because that's the source. Yeah. And I know there are a few different methods people have used to try to get around that. You know, maybe you could just use, like, the, the pitches that actually have gotten called strikes against those hitters over a, a long right. period of time to sort of indirectly, you know, see where their zone top or bottom is, or, or you could just use their height and, you know, sure. model it from there. Although then, of course, you're relying on listed heights, which are also right. inaccurate. So I guess right. there's no perfect method, but I know MLB does some post-processing of these things and kind of cleans things up after the fact sometimes. So how do you make use of that? Or, you know, sometimes, as you note on your site, things will change a little bit between when you have the Twitter graphic up and then right. when the numbers are reflected on your site. Like, I think we talked about the John Lipka game on the podcast right. a few weeks ago that had a really high percentage, maybe one missed call on the Twitter graphic. But I think his his max accuracy is lower now on the site. So how does that data change over time? And I guess what's the, the magnitude of the difference typically? Yeah, so typically it's not a large magnitude. We're talking, um, you know, one or two changes in terms of whether it's a ball or a strike as sort of the maximum. And I, at least from what I've seen, most games, there are not changes. It really comes down to, you know, the specific, specific types of pitches and specific uh, incorrect calls that can change. Like if there's one that's right on the, the top or the bottom of the zone, those are ones that can typically change. But ones that are well outside of the zone or that they're incorrect in terms of, you know, the horizontal location, those uh, more often than not do not change uh, with the post-processing. So that, you know, that's, that's a, a positive. It would not be, it would be pretty bad if like every game after they did some post-processing, all of the results changed. But yeah, this is, it's sort of an unavoidable problem. I mean, it's not exactly unavoidable, but my goal is to sort of, you know, bridge somewhat of a gap between the super analytical and technical results with a sort of clean, easy to read, comes out right after the game, or at least the morning after the game. Uh, you know, in this format that uh, fans can understand. And so, you know, so a part of that is that I don't want to wait 
two days after a game has ended for me mm -hmm. to post the um, post them. So unfortunately, that means that sometimes it'll come out, you know, on the on the Twitter in the morning. And then, you know, if I had waited another day, I would get a different result. So this specifically impacted me recently when I was uploading data to the site and I wasn't using data from today. I was using data from months ago because I had to upload all that data to the site and that data had been post-processed, whereas the data that I'm getting now is not being post-processed every day that I upload it. Mm. So there's a little bit of an inconsistency there, which is not ideal, but hopefully I will figure out some way to get around that in the future. We'll, uh, we'll see. And do you have any designs on being able to show people sort of year over year changes in an umpire's profile? Because I imagine that part of what's interesting to folks here is, you know, we have a couple of names that for better or worse are well known to us in right. the umpiring community. And I think that there is a sense that umpires are sort of bad forever or good forever. And I'm curious if we, um, or if you have plans to you know, be able to show sort of year over year trends, because I know I'd be interested to see if there are areas where maybe an umpire was struggling in particular in one season and perhaps has gotten better or worse on that score in a subsequent right. season. Right. Yeah. So the answer to your question is yes. Hopefully at some point in the near future, there will be, you'll be able to see more than just the season's worth of data. But I was, you know, I was trying to get it out by the day that I got it out by. So <laughs> Unfortunately, I was not able to add too much more. But yeah, that will be coming in the future, multiple seasons worth. You're, you're talking to someone who runs a site where as soon as we release a new feature, someone is asking, but what about this thing? So you, <laughs> yeah, you have my exactly. sympathies. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I've already gotten quite a few. You should add umpire bios. You should add yeah, a lot, <laughs> lot of things. But hopefully I'll get around to them at some point. Yeah. So I wonder how you think about how the content that you are putting out will be used and received and applied. You are just putting the information out there for people to do with as they will. But right, I think right. we all know that people get angry at umpires. And so by kind of arming them with the information here, I, I suppose you are providing ammunition. You know, if someone wants to be aggrieved about how an umpire performed in a certain game or, sure. or be bitter about it or be angry at that umpire you know, now they have hard data. Sure. So, and, you know, sometimes there are cases where an umpire has a great game and everyone shares that tweet and says, hey, right. what, a, what a great job. But I think right. that is probably outnumbered quite a bit by, you know, the bad games and, and people being upset yeah. about that. So again, like, you know, you're just presenting the information and I guess it's kind of out of your hands what happens after that. But I wonder what level of, I don't know, responsibility you think you have to kind of uh, either, you know, shape that discourse in some way or, or whether you had any misgivings about putting this information out there because of that reception? Yeah, it's a, it is a, a question I think about a lot. The first thing I'll say is that um, you, you probably would think that the, the, the games with low accuracy outnumber, or at least in terms of popularity, outnumber the games with high accuracy. But more often than not, that is actually not the case. Some of the ones that do the best are the ones where there is high accuracy. I'm looking at the homepage of the site right now, which shows out of the last week of tweets, the three that have the most likes and two are um, games with really high accuracy. And, and the third is a game with low accuracy. It's interesting. It's a it's a it's definitely obviously an interesting. You know, there's a both. Um, both are, are pretty widely popular. Um, but in terms of your question about, you know, how I'm impacting the the, the umpire analysis online scene. I certainly, I have a lot of thoughts about it. 
one thing that I will say is that, um, you know, in, in games where it's really egregious and my umpire score would be, you know, in the mid eighties or something along those lines, the fans are already, you know, there's, there's compilations of all the pitches that have been missed that are being widely shared, stuff mm -hmm. like that. It, it's not, you know, I'm not introducing this new piece of evidence where everyone was saying, oh, this umpire was great before, I, you know, I thought they were great, but now I realize they're actually bad. And let's talk about it on Twitter. It's usually just me adding to the, you know, to the, I'm adding flame to the fire. I'm not, you know, maybe I'm not exactly starting the fire per se. <laughs> You're not um, rubbing the sticks together. Yeah, yeah exa exactly. <laughs> Whereas on the other hand, when I post about a game that was umpired really well, more often than not, there was no discourse on the game at all. Funny how that of, happens. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, nobody's talking about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, these sometimes, I mean, the tweet that has the most likes on my account is the Libke game by mm -hmm. far, where initially I said he had missed uh, one call. By far, that is the most likes. I think it's around two and a half times any other tweet, um, any other, you know, a scorecard on my account. So, you know, and there's not a lot of discourse prior to when the tweets come out. So it's certainly an interesting balance in between, you know, trying to be as accurate as I can and then trying to, um, you know, affect discourse in a way that's somewhat objective and not trying to skew too much to the umpires or terrible side or skew too much to the, you know, maybe we should be nicer side, just sort of trying to be as objective as possible and, you know, just let fans go from there. Right. Yeah. And I, I think for what it's worth, I, I believe just looking at the numbers on your site and talking to some people at Baseball Prospectus about their model, which is not public, but is maybe even more sophisticated and takes into account various factors, I, I believe that yours is actually a little more lenient on the whole uh, and is maybe a, a couple percentage points higher in terms of the average accuracy rate. So right. what you're putting out there, I guess, you know, even though it, it will point out when umpires are incorrect, I guess, compared to certain models, maybe it is making them look right. even better <laughs> than they are, if anything. But, you know, I guess there there is no perfect model, as we're saying. And also, as you're saying, this information is pretty pervasive already and, and people are going to be mad at umpires regardless. And also, I think, A, the information is is free. I mean, it's not a secret. It's not something that leaked. <laughs> you know, it's, it's right. out there for anyone to, to do with what they will. And also it's on our screens, right? All these broadcasts have K zones. And so you're seeing exactly. it on a pitch to pitch basis. Exactly. You're looking at game day and, and various other tools. And those are in many cases less accurate, most likely, uh, you know, compared to what you're doing. So if anything, maybe it's kind of a, a corrective to that. And, and I wondered whether you could talk at all about those screens, since that is the most prevalent way probably that we interact with this data and umpire evaluation, even if on the broadcast, they're not tabulating the number of missed calls, you're seeing whether that dot is inside or outside the strike zone. But in many cases, that is not really reflecting reality. Yeah. I mean, it's very analogous to the work that I do in the sense that, you know, I tweet it in the morning and then in the afternoon, it might have, it might not be accurate by then. You know, we're only talking maybe an inch of difference, but it's yeah. still somewhat important. But they're trying to do a very similar thing to me, which is just provide this information so that a fan can experience it as they're watching. And so obviously, like you said, they have some difficulty in, you know, updating the height in the, the height, uh, the, the top and the bottom of the strike zone on a pitch mm -hmm. by pitch basis. They can't exactly do that. You know, if the camera is shaking or if the camera's off by a little bit, 
things like that will cause problems in the in the broadcasting system. But I, I mean, obviously, I still think it's a really valuable tool um, to be able to watch during the game. And yeah, obviously, I mean, you would wish that it was said the exact location of the pitch every time so that you wouldn't have, um, you know, people mistakenly think that they had been wronged or that their team had been wronged. But I think that is somewhat the price we pay for everybody wanting, you know, I mean, we asked for K zones on TV. It's they're they're only there. Did we? Because, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, maybe maybe not, but I certainly uh, it's certainly a, a it was a hope of mine. I know the local broadcaster that I watched for a while did not have it, and I was very thankful when they added it. Yeah, um, yeah. So and there's obviously a demand for what you do. So right, exactly, right. I'm curious, as you've you know seen so many of these propagate over over the years that you've been running the account, are there particular areas of the strike zone that you identify as problem areas across the board, even for umpires who tend to be more accurate on average than some of their colleagues? You know, honestly, I wish I had a good answer to that, but I do not. Most of my work has been focused on a game-by-game -game basis, and I haven't done too much you know, over the season for each specific umpire, I guess, research. But I do know that, like, in terms of the very rudimentary research I've done, specific portions of the strike zone, at least on a on a year-to-year -year level, can be, uh, can have some amount of variance in, in how many incorrect calls there are there, depending on, like, the batter-handedness. For example, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, inside to left-handed batters, I think. But I don't want to, uh, don't quote me on this. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure, but I, I do know that um, there are specific portions of the strike zone that will have, that will be more often called incorrectly than others. I promise I will stop asking you for new features to your site. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will ask you about a feature that you already have, which is the, the team breakdown on a season uh, level yes. where you sort of sum up the, the calls that have gone for or against the team and, and right. provide a run value there. Have you found that to be a popular feature for yeah. for fans who uh, feel like their team has been jobbed by umpires? And is that every fan base that feels that way? Because <laughs> I imagine yeah. it, it probably is. There probably aren't that many fan bases who are thinking, boy, the umpires calls have really gone our way this season. Because right. I right. think, you know, just the, the cognitive biases that we have, you tend to remember the things that go against you more readily than the things right. that go your way. Sure. So it's an interesting point. So first of all, yes, it is a probably the most, the most, I guess, requested feature. Just when it was released, it was one of the things that was asked about the most. Um, and, you know, people were tweeting their specific teams, especially White Sox fans who had been, um, I think there was a sort of an understanding that early in the year, um, some umpires had not been very nice to them. Uh, but in terms of, you know, does every fan base have a complaint? It's this is an interesting one because, for example, if you look at the if you look at the graph on the on my site, which is essentially just a scatter plot of how every team has been treated, you might look at it and say, well, you know, there are these teams in the upper right quadrant who have been treated very nicely by batters or to their you know the umpires have treated their batters very nicely and their pitchers very nicely, but it is a bit misleading. I will you know be mean to my own graph here is a bit misleading because it's the impact versus the average, not just the impact overall. So you'll notice that if you go to the, you know, just the teams page and look at how every team has been treated overall, almost every team, everyone except for the Marlins, every team's batters has lost runs over the season. 
Um, it's not like zero is the middle and some teams are above zero and some teams are below zero. Every team has lost runs because of uh, missed calls. And the reason that is, is because, you know, if you say, you know, an umpire is equally likely to call a ball a strike and a strike a ball, batters are much more likely to take balls than they are to take strikes. So over the season, you'd expect these uh, incorrect calls to overall hurt batters instead of help batters, even though sometimes they do help batters. So overall, you see that over a year, almost all of the teams, I mean, we're only in, we're in June now, and at this point, there's only one team who's been benefited by umpires, and it's by 0.56 runs over the year, and that's the Marlins. Everybody else is negative, uh, going all the way down to the Dodgers, who have lost almost 16 runs. Um, so, you know, these teams might not be, you know, the fan bases might not be able to say, oh, well, they've hurt our team more than the other team, but pretty much every fan base is able to say that missed calls over the year have hurt our team and we would have scored more runs without them. I guess a related question, and here I'm going to ask you to sort of speculate or at least use your experience of the replies to your Twitter account, which, <laughs> you know, the accuracy of that in terms of describing real phenomena, I suppose, is in question. But I'm curious if people seem to be more agitated in response to bad calls hurting their batters or their pitchers? Is there one that seems to strike people as a graver injustice than the other? Because I think that if you're in the ballpark, fans just yell at umpires sort of regardless of how good the job is. And um, they seem to want good calls to go their way when their pitcher is on the mound and also when they are at the plate. And that's fine because being a fan is sort of an exercise in being at least a little bit irrational. But I'm curious what you have seen people respond sort of the most vigorously to in terms of um, calls that have gone against their team and if it tends to be stronger on one side of the ball than the other. Right. If I had to speculate, I would definitely say that it was calls that impact the batter. I think it's sort of a more, I don't I, I definitely see more of a reaction. For example, there was a Yankees game just today and I was getting a lot of mentions for it. And all of <laughs> nearly, I'd say probably 95% of the mentions are looking at this is what Ryan Yarbrough's pitches were, and they were called uh, they were called strikes. Not, you know, this is what Garrett Cole's pitches were, and they were not called strikes. I think most of the time people care about uh, how their own batters have been treated because it feels like maybe I don't I, I'm not exactly sure why, but to me it's sort of like, well, it's my team's turn now, and you know, this is how we've been affected. Um, for some reason, I, I'm not sure exactly why, but I mean, even in situations that are really comparable, like the same bases loaded, two outs, three, two pitch on both sides, you'll see more comments, um, at least from like one team's perspective on the event where their team was batting, not on the one where their team was pitching, even if both of them went against uh, the, the team that they favor. And one thing I wanted to clarify about how to judge accuracy is that I guess there are multiple ways you can do that in that you can try to figure out was this pitch in the rulebook strike zone at some point or you could look at the zone as it is actually called and say, right. here's the you know typical probability that right. a pitch in this location will be a strike. And then you can sort of measure umpires just against you know the zone as it is in reality, as opposed right. to as it is in the graphic or in the rule book itself. And if you were doing the latter, then you probably wouldn't want umpires to be 100% accurate because there are certain pitches that technically would probably be strikes. And if you were using a, a robo zone, it would say that was a strike. But 
in right. practice, umpires have not been calling that pitch a strike. Hitters have not expected for that to be called a strike against them. We saw this issue with the Atlantic League testing the trackman zone and thinking that was a strike. And, you know, it's uh, maybe a curveball that just kind of clips the front bottom edge of the zone and then it sinks so low that by the time the catcher catches it it doesn't look like it possibly could have been a strike but it is technically so I guess you could do it multiple ways and do you see a merit to doing it one way or the other because I think BP has done it maybe both ways but but also in that way of just looking at the typical probability and then not necessarily doing a binary right or wrong but kind of incremental probabilities so just sort of adding up you know if this is a a 10 percent strike in most situations and the guy calls it a a ball then you know maybe you assess just part of a an incorrect call instead of a a full incorrect call so have you thought about doing it in that way is it just too complicated or, or too hard to explain no, it's 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 definitely an interesting question. In terms of my preference, I think I'm of the type of baseball fan that if I had to choose, I would rather just the call be correct every time, no matter how crazy it might seem that it is a strike. You know, mm-hmm. if it if it hits the zone and and falls out by the time it leaves the zone and you say, "Oh, wow, you know, there's there's no way that was a strike." I think that if it is a strike, if it was a strike, it should be called a strike. So I'm sure that's part of the my like bias that has gone into the creation of my system. Um, but in terms of why I don't do it incrementally and I just look at every call and say, was this accurate? Was it not accurate? And then weight each call by the same amount, uh, no matter how close it was. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, it, it, it's one is a, a, certainly a question of difficulty. Um, and then the other is just a question of how can I relay this evidence back out to fans the next morning? And so if I use this sort of incremental approach, I think it's a it's definitely more confusing um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, what the value of each missed call was. How do we come up with these values? Whereas doing it sort of just like, was this right? Was it wrong? What percent of the time were you right? Is, right. is a, It's a much simpler thing to communicate. I guess related to that, I think one of the things that Ben and I have talked a lot about on the podcast as we anticipate the arrival of the RoboZone is the process of education that's going to need to go on with hitters certainly, and I guess pitchers too, but with fans more generally about what the what the zone is going to look like, um, and sort of retraining them to have you know not that you always again have to react rationally as a fan to the call uh, on the field, but to sort of retrain their intuitive sense of was that a a ball or a strike and was that called correctly? And you're thinking about this a lot, right? How you present that information in a way that's digestible. And so I'm curious what you maybe think we could all be doing now to help fans understand what the zone might look like uh, when we do get robo-umps because – I continue to say, like, if if you think people are grumpy now, just just wait, because <laughs> it's gonna yeah. it's gonna be pretty different in in some instances from what they're used to, and I think that that might take some time to sort of acclimate ourselves to. Yeah, it'll definitely be a change. I think it'll be you know similar to other changes that have come in other sports. In the you know in professional soccer, a lot of leagues are adding. Um, you know, like more stringent technology adjacent offsides rules where, you know, they draw these really specific lines and there's pretty harsh reactions to that. Sports leagues all over the world are implementing new technology like pretty much every season to to increase their to increase their performance. So I think you're right. There will definitely have to be some amount of, you know, just like you said, education about 
uh, how fans should react and what they will know as a ball and as a strike. Um, but I think ultimately, if if it's well defined and it's transparent, they tell us how you know exactly it's measured, where the strike zone is, the top and the bottom specifically. Then you know personally, I would be much happier. I think just knowing that a ball was a a pitch was a ball or a pitch was a strike to know exactly what it was, I think would stop keeping me up at night versus you know what I know now, which is well, was it correct? Was it incorrect? There's it's you know much more vague now. So regardless of whether, um, yeah, I think just being able to be certain in the in the call would 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 make a lot of fans pretty pretty happy. And were you a Robo Umps advocate before you started this project? And if so, are you still as staunch an advocate now that you have built a brand that depends on fallible, flawed humans? <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting. I was definitely I, so I've always been pro Robo Ump just because you know I'm of the opinion that. If there is a way to improve accuracy, we should do it. Um, you know, nothing more. I don't have a vendetta against umpires or anything like that. I just think that this is a blind spot in the game that, you know, if there, we're trying to increase the amount of runs that are scored every year, this is decreasing runs. And uh, and there's if we have the technology to do it, which maybe we don't at the moment, but if we did, then we should implement it. But certainly now, having done, you know, this for a while, I think I've sort of changed my opinion. I'm still definitely pro robo ump, but I'm less, uh, you might call it anti umpire than I was before. Um, I think I came into it not necessarily knowing how difficult the job of, of being an umpire really is. I mean, my work is hard enough already, and I'm just telling you, like, if this number was greater than this number, or this number was less than this number. But yeah. they have to do it in real time. I mean, it's it's an incredibly difficult job. So, you know, my opinion is not that, oh, well, umpires are terrible. Let's just throw in the robots. My opinion is that umpires might not be doing, you know, they're not performing as well as you would expect like a, a computer to do, but they're still performing uh, really well. So, you know, we shouldn't bash them. They're, you know, they're, they're trying their best. Uh, but at the same time, you know, this is a sport and there are rules in the sport that are well defined within the rule book. And yet somehow they're just like not followed a lot in the game of baseball, which is really interesting. There um, are not a lot of analogous things in other sports. Like if you watched a football game, it would not be common to see them, you know, call a touchdown when it's not a touchdown, like, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the time in a game. That would be sort of absurd. And, you know, they if do you still watch the, carry those chains out on the field to figure out if it's a first down. <laughs> that is true. That is true. They do still you, carry you the chains. You need to create a, a ref chain bot, which <laughs> yeah. can evaluate that somehow. You know, it's interesting. I have gotten a lot of comments about, like, will you be making this for hockey? Will you be making this for NCAA basketball? Stuff like that. Um, but baseball really lends itself to this sort of analysis, whereas other sports uh, do not necessarily make it so easy. Yeah, there are many more opportunities to mess up <laughs> for umpires, and they're <laughs> yeah. pretty pretty consequential. And yeah, I wondered whether having accounts like yours out in the public sphere sort of 
increases support for RoboUmps, which I, I think is you know pretty robust as it is. But and again, as we were saying, it's uh, not news to anyone that umpires make mistakes. But I do wonder whether right. having this hard data has really confirmed that way of thinking. And and Meg and I have some reservations about that, as we've discussed on the show. Not so much about the technology, which might not be 100% perfect, but would probably be more accurate and consistent than humans. But, you know, not only are we not anti-umpire in the sense that we recognize how hard the job is, but we're pro-catcher and catching, and we enjoy (laughs) the, the craft of catching and framing. And I also have some concerns about what will happen if the strike zone is the same on every pitch, which sounds like a, a, a positive. It sounds like it should be the same on every count. But I do think that there may be some advantages to having it shrink and expand as the count changes to essentially give an advantage to whichever party is behind in the count. And so I do kind of wonder, you know, right. given that hitters are already sort of screwed if they're down 0-2 or 1-2 in this day and age. If the strike zone is the same size on 0-2 as it is on any other count, then the job gets even harder. Whereas now, you know, you might get a little leeway there. The zone shrinks a little bit. You could take that borderline pitch, whereas you wouldn't be able to then. So I think that keeps plate appearances more competitive, more entertaining maybe. So I will be curious to see how that works out. But the reason why I wondered about how this changes public support is that I was curious about whether you have heard from the league at all about your efforts here, because I know going back years when pitch FX data first became available and people were doing umpire analysis, MLB was pretty touchy about that back then. And I think they felt like, hey, we're giving you this free data, although they did that by accident initially. (laughs) But, you know, we're giving you this data and you're using it to make us look bad or make umpires look bad or make the sport look bad. And so, you know, there used to be umpire cards on Brooks baseball. And I, I believe that MLB asked or or ordered that those be taken down and so maybe that's why there was an opportunity for you here um, (laughs) that that there weren't widely available leaderboards or you're not going to find this on baseball savant right but i wonder whether that's changed a because i think the information is more accessible there's this public stats api now so it would be hard to restrict how people use that information i think whereas in the past you know there would be individual feeds that would be sent to certain sites and in theory could be cut off but right. also because mlb seems to be pro robo um these days so not that they want to embarrass the umpires or or make people doubt the legitimacy of the games especially with sure. gambling going on and everything but I wonder whether they think, well, you know, if it convinces people that we need robo-umps, then maybe it's nice to have it out there. So have you heard in either direction anything, any pushback, any praise, anything? (laughs) Well, the short answer is no. I haven't heard anything from the MLB specifically. I have heard, um, you know, some stuff from umpires just in general Mm -hmm. online and, uh, you know, who had some reservations about the way I did stuff. And coincidentally, the, the ones who... Um, you know, first convinced me that it was going to be a good idea uh, to add some level of tolerance into my accuracy ratings was actually a group of umpires. So, you know, they, it's it's not like it's been all sorts of, you know, animosity between me and the umpires online and certainly not between me and um, the MLB, at least as of now, crossing my fingers as I say that I have not gotten, you know, any cease and desist orders as of yet. <laughs> 
And I had sort of the same question about whether this has opened up any other opportunities for you. I I wonder whether a project of this nature has brought you to team's attention or whether that is something that you want to pursue. Because I see on your website, you've done a lot of database projects and some of them have nothing to do with baseball or sports. So is this a direction you want to keep going in or have you kind of been pulled in this direction because of the response? It's probably a little bit of both, honestly. Uh, there certainly has been, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a big project and yeah. there's some amount of luck in it uh, that it, it, it took off, but, you know, it's a lot of work. And so I'm, you know, very thankful that seemingly some people have, uh, some people have noticed. Uh, but yeah, like, like you said, I mean, there's still a lot of other types of research that I like doing. Um, yeah. Like, thank you for plugging the website. You can, uh, you can check that out. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I'm not exactly sure. I'm still, you know, not like a, I, I don't have to decide at this moment. Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely still uh, looking into some, you know, different things that I could do. Yeah. And for people who, who don't know your, your backstory, can you, I mean, you're still in school, right? You're studying. Sure. Uh, yeah. Can you kind of explain what you're studying and, and what skills you've picked up that have been helpful here if, if people want to do this sort of thing themselves or, you know, figure out what skills would be useful to create this kind of project? What yeah. has led you down this path? Sure. I'd love to. So I'm currently a sophomore and I study statistics and computer science. And uh, there are, you know, there's a lot of things that I think are sort of important on a project like this. One is definitely just finding something that you're super interested in. That makes everything easier. Uh, The work becomes a lot less tedious. It's much easier to work for long periods of time and work on many things at once if you actually enjoy the work that you're doing. So try to find a project that you find interesting. And then, you know, I didn't really know a ton about, you know, programming and APIs before I got started in this project. So, you know, if you're trying to start a project, definitely don't consider the fact that you don't know everything about what you're about to embark on as a reason not to. So yeah, that's like definitely some advice that I have. And then I guess the other advice that I have is, I don't, I mean, this is sort of like a great case study of just put something out into the world and then maybe people will enjoy it. And then maybe you will benefit uh, from that. So, you know, just like kind of go for it, I guess. That's kind of the the uh, the philosophy that I had while doing this, and evidently it worked out somewhat somewhat well. Well, assuming that you stick with the umpire stuff for a little while, what are some site features that you have planned? I've st- I'm not asking you for a specific thing. <laughs> I'm giving you an opportunity to tell us all what you have planned coming up, so people will stop asking you. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, that is a great question. So the big one, the big one is well, there are there are a few big ones, I should say. Uh, one is like more long-term data from years past. Um, and so part of that will be, you know, like over time analysis that you'll be able to do. Another one is, I this is sort of more of a, a, t- a technical thing on my side, but like every morning I still wake up and press the run button, which I kind of would not like to do in the future. It's much better than what it was before, which was me typing in all of this data onto like a template that I had built. Um, but now, you know, it's much easier. I just press this little green play button and it goes for me, but it's still kind of a pain because, you know, sometimes I forget and then I feel bad and then I get all these tweets and, you know, where are the scorecards? So instead I would probably like to automate that at some point. Um, and you know, there's just some other stuff. I, I, I think really just the long-term one. And then, you know, there, like I, I sort of, um, lightly mentioned earlier, 
a season-long consistency metric for umpires because the the metric that I use right now is it's fine, but there's definitely ways to improve it, um, but only ones that work, at least from what I've thought of, um, on a season as a whole instead of on a game-by-game -game basis. So adding something like that to the umpires page maybe, but for the moment, you know, it's summer, so I think I'm just going to relax and, you know, keep working and uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, well, congrats on the reception and on launching the site and Thank your you. success in, in finding an audience. And hopefully the umpires don't feel too bad about it. <laughs> you know that, uh, you know, some people feel sorry for umpires and, and I kind of do too. I guess, you know, they sign up for it. They know that uh, that they're going to be in for some scrutiny if they're a major league official and the information is out there. And of course, they're all getting graded and evaluated behind the scenes constantly with MLB's own zone evaluation system. So sure. right. not necessarily exactly. anything new to them, but I am curious to see how it all works out with RoboUmps and how that would change the culture of umpiring and just how it'll change the way the game is played and the aesthetics and all of that. But that right. is a, a matter for future seasons, although probably not in the, the too distant future, <laughs> I would think. So yeah, you can right. find the Twitter account, Umpire Scorecards, at Ump Scorecards. You can find the website with the FAQ and all the stats and glossary and contact information at umpscorecards.com and you can find ethan's website at ethan-singer.com he is also on twitter although not nearly as active as he is <laughs> at umpscorecards at ethan p singer so thank you very much ethan looking forward to what you come up with next yeah of course thank you for having me on all right, that will do it for today. By the way, the outcome of that owner's meeting I mentioned earlier in the episode that was reportedly scheduled to touch on sticky substances is apparently that the crackdown is coming. Ken Rosenthal tweeted, MLB informed owners this week of severity of issue with pitchers applying foreign substances to baseballs. Enforcement is coming, but league will follow a process involving communicating with players and umpires unions as well as all 30 clubs. John Heyman tweeted, evidence was presented at the MLB owner's meetings to suggest that the use of illegal foreign substances by pitchers trying to enhance spin rates and get an edge is very prevalent in the game, so the crackdown will now commence in earnest. Joel Sherman says there are three areas of emphasis. First, placing a greater responsibility on teams to enforce rules against doctoring the ball within their own clubs. Second, empowering umpires to check, especially caps, gloves, and uniforms for signs of illegal substances on a pitcher. The strategy likely would be for umpires to check each pitcher as he enters the game, remove any questionable piece of uniform or equipment, and provide a warning that a return of an illegal substance would lead to ejection from the game and discipline by MLB. And third, what we talked about earlier, stepping up enforcement in the minor leagues as a way to address a systemic problem within the sport. So we shall see, perhaps starting sometime soon. And then maybe we will see whether the league-wide spin rate dips, which would be very interesting. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Jacob Davis, Richard Anderson, Ted Miles, Sam Klein, and Ryan Fraser. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we will be back with another episode before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. I knew